Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We'll turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID and occasionally other infectious diseases. Our guest and your guide is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. Um, I know this is a COVID segment. I-, I wanted to start on another infectious disease that has been in the news in the past week. Um, the disease formerly known as monkeypox, it is now mpox, something we discussed a few times a little over a year ago. Uh, the CDC has now warned that it is worried about a resurgence because there was a cluster of cases in Chicago and several local public health authorities uh, are sending out uh, advice that people in high-risk communities and and in the last surge it principally moved through networks of men who have sex with men they are advising that they get vaccinated before Pride Month. So I was wondering if you could just take us through a quick review of MPOX, how it spreads, and and who's at risk. Sure. MPOX has been around for quite a long time, many decades. We recognized it uh, back many decades ago. Um, It is a disease like other pox viruses, the one that most people have heard about, smallpox, but it's nothing like smallpox, um, that causes eruptions on the skin and what we call mucous membranes, that is in the mouth and gastrointestinal tract, and can be really very serious uh, in some people. It um, has, we've seen sporadic cases of it over the decades here in the United States. We saw a moderate outbreak Uh, a couple of decades ago, but nothing like what we experienced in the last 18 months or so with a very large outbreak um, worldwide. So not really called a pandemic, but it was a worldwide outbreak. So um, it really does fit under that category. It occurred primarily in men who have sex with men, not because men who have sex with men are predisposed to it in any other way than other by other than by transmission, and fortunately, there is a vaccine for it, and that vaccine has been helpful. Uh, it's not a hundred percent protection, but it has been very helpful, and it did control. The vaccine did help control that large outbreak that we first experienced a while back. Um, what really helped control it was that people started being much more careful about how to spread this, uh, to avoid spreading this virus. And so the combination of the population at risk, um, being much more careful, and the vaccine really went a long way to controlling it, not just here in the U.S., but in other countries as well. 
Unfortunately, what we've learned over the last year is that the virus hasn't gone away, that we still still see small outbreaks occurring, like you mentioned in Chicago. Um, and so the virus is still there. It still can spread, and it still represents a problem. And it's not 100% guarantee that the vaccine is going to prevent you from getting diseased from the virus. So the CDC, I think, prudently um, didn't really raise an alarm, but really wanted to raise awareness that MPOX is still circulating and that if we loosen up on our vaccinations and if we loosen up on the things we do to prevent transmission, we're going to see more and more cases. And that's why the notification came out from the CDC. And um, I'm hopeful that people will pay attention to this notification if you're at high risk for the disease. As you mentioned, Brian, get vaccinated. If you're at high risk for this disease, learn about transmission, how the virus is transmitted, and learn about what you can do to help prevent that transmission. Uh, local public health authorities that have put out a bulletin on this, they're defining as high risk uh, people who are HIV positive. Presumably, that's because you're at higher risk of more severe consequences if you're infected with MPOX. Uh, men who have sex with men and people who are taking PrEP, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. Right. And Is there anyone the else who should be... Yeah, go ahead. You know, I just wanted to emphasize that taking pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV doesn't put you at increased risk of getting the virus. It just is identifying a higher risk group of people who will be men who have sex with men. Um, What have we learned about MPOX and the countermeasures against it? since it, you know, was last surging in news coverage over a year ago? I think we've learned quite a bit. We've learned that there are lots of viruses in this world um, that have the potential to wreak havoc, not just in the country they begin in or the area of the world they begin in, but throughout throughout this planet. And it's just another warning uh, that... We're going to be witnessing more and more of these kinds of problems unless we're investing a lot more in public health, investing a lot more in vaccine development, and making people much more aware of what they can do to protect themselves. So that's, I think, the general warning from MPOX as it is from any virus that is spread like SARS-CoV-2. I think more specifically what we've learned uh, about the pox vir- this pox virus is uh, that we need a much better vaccine than we currently have. Fortunately, we have a vaccine that is safe and effective, but I'd love to see one that's more effective. Uh, that would be a big ish, a big accomplishment. A second thing is um, better public health communication to identify people who are at risk and really find that sweet spot between not stigmatizing any group, but at the same time making people who are at higher risk aware and giving them the tools they need to help prevent themselves from getting infected. So I think those are some of the major general areas we've learned from MPOX. Let's talk about those tools real quick. Um, first of all, for for anyone who got vaccinated during the, the first outbreak, which started, as you said, about 18 months ago, 
uh, are, are boosters something they should even be thinking about? It's not clear at this point uh, whether boosters are necessary. Um, the major thrust really needs to be that those people who have not been vaccinated to get vaccinated, but keep a close eye on what's going to be advised about um, if you got vaccinated 18 months ago, whether you should be getting another booster at this point. And when we say other other measures, non-pharmaceutical interventions, uh, what are they? Is is it safer sex, uh, physical barriers? It's really safe, safer sex. Um, it's it's really the focus is really on what we call harm reduction. That is, um, we we learned a long time ago. Actually, we learned this uh, here in San Francisco a long time ago, and then the rest of the world learned it after that. Was that um, the policies that were uh, instituted to control HIV infection back in the 80s of telling people not to have sex, they just don't work, obviously. And um, we need to identify the, or we need to promote the idea that there is such a thing as safer sex, uh, really the same things we talk about with HIV transmission or any kind of sexually transmitted infection transmission. Um, and that we need to reduce the risk of getting HIV, but you can, excuse me, with MPOX, but we need to do that in conjunction with getting people vaccinated. All right. Um, I think that was very helpful, Dr. Swartzberg. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking a few minutes to travel outside of the COVID wheelhouse with us ahead of Pride Month. Sure. Um, I want to turn to to questions that have come to our inbox from our listeners because uh, we, we don't open our phone lines during the fun drive because those are also our pledge lines and we have a limited number of lines into the building. Uh, I, we've gotten repeated questions through our inbox most recently from Barbara in Davis about nasal sprays that purport to be able to prevent COVID infection. I know this is something that you and I discussed briefly uh, a week or two ago, uh, but Barbara is saying a, a physician friend of hers said they have stopped wearing masks even on airplanes because that physician friend uses a, a pre-exposure antiviral spray. I'll omit the brand name. I'm not here in the business of selling non-FDA approved medical products. Um, What is the state of evidence on these things? Well, it's tantalizing. The evidence is tantalizing. There's very little of it in terms of real good evidence, double-blinded control studies. But there is a a biological basis where these uh, sprays may work. They, They can operate as a means of blocking the ability of the virus to attach to our cells in our nose, for example, and then get inside of our cells and start to replicate. So they can work as a prophylactic. Um, There are other um, nasal sprays that are being developed that are working really to immunize us so that if if we do inhale the virus, the virus can get into our cells, but then we can stop it from reproducing beyond that level. So there are a variety of ways we're attacking that. The product that um, Barbara was referring to is is a product that was developed in Israel. Uh, there is some evidence that it may help block um, infection, but the evidence is really very slim at this point. And I think that... Um, the the message that uh, her physician friend gave her that she or he no longer wears a mask to protect him or herself 
uh, because of the use of this nasal spray, I think is um, uh, probably not wise because we really don't know how well this nasal spray works um, or really if it works at all. Uh, I think there's a good chance that it may have some effectiveness. We don't know how much, but it's much too premature to to take away other precautions uh, from yourself uh, because you're using a nasal spray. I, okay, just like on, on the mechanism side, I'm trying to imagine how this product would work and thinking about how often I breathe through my mouth. <laughs> it just seems like the virus has a lot of landing pads that aren't in the place uh, places a nasal spray would reach. Do, do we think it's just not capable of kindling an infection when it lands in, in the recesses of your lungs? Right. Um, I've had that same thought as well. You know, we um, the nose appears to be the major way that people get infected, breathing the virus into the nose. Um, that's because <clears throat> most of us do breathe through the nose, not, maybe not in this allergy season, though, uh, when it's difficult to, um, to do that. But um, certainly a lot of virus can come through the oropharynx, through the mouth and the, and the portion of your mouth, um, what we call the pharynx. And the virus can infect us that way. And the virus can also infect us through the conjunctiva, the lining of the eyes. So these are the major portals, the nose probably being number one, the mouth being number two, and the eyes probably not nearly as important. Um, the nasal spray uh, probably is not going to give us any, if it does give protection, it's probably not going to give us any protection beyond the nose. Um, and it does leave the oropharynx as a place where the virus can infect. Again, this has to be studied. It could be that a nasal spray through the nose, you may inhale enough of the medication that, and if the medication is really highly effective, maybe that would give protection even in the oropharynx. Um, these things need to be studied. It's so premature to be talking about these nasal sprays as any form of protection at this point. Well, what, what, I guess what's the basis for the theory that just protecting your nasal passage is enough? Is it that the, the cells with the receptors the virus attaches to are concentrated there, or have they actually studied uh, the, the virus's movement through the body from the inception of an infection? Yeah, the, there, there's a lot of study about inhaling, the, inhaling air through the nose and mouth. And as I said, most people do inhale the bulk of the breathing is through the nose. Uh, that's where the air is filtered and cooled, um, excuse me, and warmed. Um, but um, there's there's not a lot of science to show that just protecting the nose alone is going to be sufficient. It certainly would be sufficient if we're talking about a nasal spray that's a vaccine because the vaccine mm -hmm. would immunize not uh, just the cells in the nose when you inhale it, but it would give us a generalized mucosal immunity, mucosal meaning the cells that line our nose and throat and eyes and so on. So I can certainly see the biological basis for a nasal vaccine. It's a stretch to see that a nasal vaccine that blocks, in, uh, blocks virus entering the cells in the nose would be sufficient alone to give us the kind of protection we'd need. Wouldn't it be equally as protective as putting a clothespin over your nose? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen any studies on that, Brian. 
But it's theoretically the same mechanism, right? If, if air is not washing down your nose, you're protected because the rest of your respiratory tract isn't going to be reached by a spray. You know, it is theoretical. Uh, you're absolutely yeah, right. Fair enough. But let's let's take a, a look from another angle at this. Um, let's say that this this product or products like this are developed that really work well, that they really do block the vast majority of viral particles from entering the nasopharynx. If that's the case, um, we need to learn whether that's going to be a sufficient route of administration, whether people will need to do a nasal administration and then an oral administration, or maybe just the nasal administration would be effective. So I don't want to rule out any of these things. It's very exciting that we're starting to think of other ways to protect ourselves. Um, But we just don't have enough data or enough really basic science to tell us what is the best way that these might work if they do work. Fair enough. Uh, Dr. Schwartzberg, before I let you go, uh, maybe I can read you a couple comments from people who've been pledging during your segment and mentioning you. Uh, Someone just chipped in from San Francisco and said, they are especially grateful to have you on our airwaves as it's harder and harder to find reliable information on COVID. And uh, Daniel in San Jose pledged earlier because his son has long COVID and says they listen to the COVID coverage together every Monday morning. So uh, from our listeners to you, thank you so much for making time for us. Of course. Thank you. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org. Or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. Next week, the schedule changes, though, because of the Memorial Day holiday. We'll do the live show Tuesday at 7.30 a.m. Pacific, and we'll post the podcast shortly afterwards. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.